you know, one of my favorite parts of uh, Brett's latest book, it's called What Drives Winning Environments. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite books, period, because it just has so many tools. But one of my favorite tools in that book is something that uh, Mike Holder, the athletic director at Oklahoma State said. And he said, if I want my team to blank, then I need to blank. And I feel like that needs to be like a practice t-shirt because like you could just put a different word in there every day. You know, if I want my team to be poised, then I need to be poised. If I want my team to be resilient, then I need to be resilient. And so many times I think like coaches are sort of given this free pass to act the way they want to. And, you know, I, I think we have to like be able to remove ourselves emotionally enough to react in what the team needs as opposed to what our own personal needs are. Welcome to the Coaches Club Podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to welcome Becky Burley to the podcast. Coach Burley is the former head coach of the University of Florida's women's soccer team. She started the program in 1995 and spent the next 26 years as the head coach until her recent retirement. In 1998, only the fourth year of the program's existence, Coach Burley led the team to a national championship. During her time at the helm, she amassed over 500 wins and won nearly 75% of her games. Her teams went to numerous national tournaments, won conference titles, and she won multiple Coach of the Year awards. She also co-founded What Drives Winning with Brett Ledbetter, and as you'll hear about in the interview, she's currently focused on serving and educating the next generation of coaches. In this conversation, we talk about building a program from the ground up, keeping our identity separated from outcomes, aligning coaching staffs, creating a connected team, and a lot more. Before we hop in, I have a few things I want to share with you. First, I had the opportunity to write the study guide for Doug Lamov's book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching. Doug was my guest in episode one of the podcast, and we talked about his book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching. We recently released the free study guide, and you can go download a copy at cgtbookclubs.com. The study guide includes discussion and application questions for each chapter of the book. And in addition to the study guide, I'm launching free virtual book clubs that are four weeks long and cover one chapter of the Coach's Guide to Teaching at a time. I'll be leading the book clubs and Doug will be making guest appearances for a Q&A and film session. I opened up the first two book clubs a couple weeks ago with 30 spots each, one for U.S. coaches and one for U.K. and or U.S. coaches, and within 30 hours, all 60 spots had sold out. I'm not sure when I'm going to open up the next round of free book clubs, but if you want to join the waitlist and be the first to know about upcoming free book clubs, go to cgtbookclubs.com and join the waitlist. And as always, if you'd like to get the free podcast notes from this episode, go to coachesclubpod.com or just click the link in the show details to get a free PDF of the notes from this episode with Coach Becky Burley. Now to my conversation with Becky Burley. Enjoy the episode. Coach is really excited to welcome Coach Becky Burley to the podcast today. Coach, I would love to know this first. Will you just tell me what inspired you and your partner, Brett Ledbetter, to start What Drives Winning? Oh, good question. Right off the bat. Um, it really was 
Brett's had this academy. It was a seventh to 12th grade basketball academy. And he was teaching in this academy, like three basic things. One was a footwork system. And a second was they played 3v3 for development. And the third was they would go into this film room and have these interviews that they had done with coaches and players and sort of teach lessons through that. And so when I actually met Brett, I went up there to look at the footwork system because I knew there must be some crossover for soccer. But we went in the film room around lunch. And and honestly, we never really talked much about the footwork again after that. I was just so intrigued with that teaching style and how effective it was. Um, And then I brought him to work with my team. Some of the other teams at UF started to really love what we were doing. He started working with a bunch of the teams here and kind of the rest is history. We decided we would do a head coaches collaboration at UF. And then we decided we would do a head coaches collaboration like across the country. And that kind of started our conference. That's awesome. And I know you said it ended up not really being the focus, but I, I do love and respect that the way that you connect with him is that as a soccer coach, you were like, okay, I need to go observe this basketball Academy that's happening. Cause I know that there's going to be something there for me to take back to my soccer team. So I think that's awesome. I think more coaches would be served if they spent more time observing sports outside of their own. It's, you know, I think it's kind of easy to build, build a silo around your sport and yeah, just not look outside of it for new ideas. I, I think so. that's a really great point actually, because I do feel like, even, even if you get outside of your sport, I feel like people are more willing to authentically share. And maybe it's the, you know, the fear of giving away your trade secrets or something. But, um, you know, I've been involved in several programs. The very first one I was ever involved with was, was the uh, NCAA Women's Coaches Academy. And that's for all sports. It was kind of my first exposure to an all sports professional development event. And that was life-changing for me because I felt like, wow, like why aren't, we doing this more like my professional development before that sort of consisted of my coaches convention, my sports coaches convention. And so having that, you know, cross pollination of sports, I think is really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I think again, more coaches would be better served to, to do that. And that's something that I'm wanting to do in my coaching too, is just spend more time with coaches in other sports. Cause again, yeah, there's just so much, I think we can glean from each other. My next question you started the women's soccer program at Florida. Uh, you were the first head coach there, built it from the ground up. I would love to know about that process and, and what were some of the challenges of building a program and some of the lessons you learned through that process? There were a lot of challenges. <laughs> you know, I was lucky enough to do that at an institution that was like so fully supportive of adding a new sport and so excited about soccer. And um, so I had the resources to be able to do it. You know, at the time I was hired a year in advance and that was like so such a groundbreaking thing at that time. Um, but the challenges were, you know, when you're trying to bring a whole brand new team in all at once, And you don't have a team for them to interact with when they get here to visit. So, you know, I was very fortunate that all the other sports at Florida really stepped up and helped host our players and entertain our players on their visits and, you know, really get to show them what Gator life looked like, even though they couldn't show them what Gator soccer life would look like, they could show them what Gator athlete life looked like. And I'm, I'm still, um, absolutely appreciative of that because it was a game changer because they did such a great job hosting our players. Um, I think also just the, 
the challenges when you step into a situation like Florida and, you know, it's so exciting. You get the job and it's like, this is amazing. And then you, the reality sinks in that like every sport here is so good. And there's like a pressure to that, you know, and you're in that every single day. It's a very visible place. Um, but you know, that, that also people care about sports here and, and that has its challenges, but it also has its, its beauty. Um, so I think it was just, a an exciting time. I'm glad I did it. I'm not sure I would ever do it again. It was exhausting. I, yeah, I can imagine, especially starting yeah from scratch to kind of continue to pull on that thread a little bit more you guys had a lot of success. I mean, in the fourth year, you won a national championship and then a lot of success moving forward from there until you recently retired. Tell me about the keys to to sustaining success in your program, especially with that pressure that you just mentioned that definitely existed at your university. Well, that's interesting because, you know, I've heard a lot of coaches um, that I've spoken to that have won national championships talk about how, you know, climbing the mountain has so much excitement, but staying on the mountain is exhausting. I think uh, I think that might be a paraphrased quote from Urban Meyer, football coach from Florida, Ohio State. And I, I can see that. I think it is challenging to to sustain a certain level of success because it's almost like you light the fire that burns you at that point, you set the expectation, you set the expectation early. And then, you know, that's what is expected. Um, I think for us, one of the keys to having such early success was the willingness to challenge ourselves, like literally day in and day out with the most aggressive schedule we could. And there were times that that was scary because, you know, you're leaving yourself vulnerable to being killed. Like we did, we, we, we lost to Carolina nine, zero, I think the first year, five, zero, the second year. Um, but at the same time, like it just was, it accelerated the process because it exposed our weaknesses. You know, we saw exactly what we needed to shore up to get better. Um, and I think, I think a lot of coaches, hesitate to do that because of the, you know, being exposed like that. But I don't know. I just feel like if you're trying to really build a program quickly and then sustain it, like test yourself daily, test yourself all the time. Um, we've never shied away from a difficult schedule. And I think that's been sort of a hallmark of this program. And I think that's helped us. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, such a practical takeaway for coaches. It, you know, I think it could be easy as a coach to try to manipulate the schedule to, again, like you said, maybe hide some of your flaws or weaknesses. And I'll just share a quick story. I, I played soccer through high school and I went to a, a smaller private school in the Kansas City area, but we were kind of surrounded by a bunch of really big high schools, the biggest classification in the state. And during the regular season, we would play a ton of them. Like we were a two a 2A high school, but we would play a bunch of the five and six a schools. And that absolutely prepared us for like our end of the season tournament when we would play only one through four, a high schools. And just like you said, going against big challenges really exposes you and, and challenges, I think your players, your team, and as a coach too, it's like, okay, well, these things, these things are obviously glaring weaknesses. So yeah, I like that a lot. Just being willing to, to challenge yourself and your team. And I think that takes a, a level of security 
as the coach to be willing to do that. Like we said, cause you're putting yourself out there. And like you said, there's some times where it really did not go well at all. <laughs> yeah. I think when we lost nine, it was because they just stopped scoring. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I also feel like it's also very important about the way you frame that because, you know, when we lost nine Oh, and then we felt like we had made these major strides and then we lose five Oh, I mean, five Oh in soccer is like, you know, losing 35, nothing in football. Like that's, that's bad. Um, and so you've got to frame the progress and like reward the progress and not necessarily look at the outcome. And I think that, um, again, like it's difficult sometimes because outcome is how we're measured. You know, it's clear that the scoreboard is what people pay attention to. But I think when we framed it that way, where our team could see progress, it made that process of going through the difficult uh, losses more palatable. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, especially with what you just said about, you know, it's so easy to become attached to the outcome. How did you personally, as a coach, keep yourself grounded and not let your identity become attached to the outcome of games? You know, that's an interesting question. That's like, we could probably talk for like 24 hours on that. (laughs) I think, I think I had several factors that helped me. I think one, it's hard to overlook. Um, My early success probably helped in the process of not feeling like I had to prove myself over and over again as a young coach. Um, But I think more importantly, I think what really helped me was most of the people in my life, um, including my parents, my family, my closest friends are really not very invested in me as a coach. Like they, you know, they follow the team and they're fans, but they're not like rabid fans. And they're not like talking to me about results. Like, I mean, some of my, my college teammates, like they just, they think it's funny that I was the Florida coach, you know, they're like, how did that happen? And so I think when you have friends that don't get too attached to what you do, it's, it's a lot easier for you to not get attached to what you do. But if you're surrounding yourself with people who are really attached to what you do and maybe not even in an intentional way, you know, maybe it's like your spouse and they love living in the town that you're coaching in and they don't want to move. So like the pressure is on, like, don't make us move. You know, I think having people who are very unattached to things made me less likely to be attached. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really good. I mean, the important, the people we surround ourselves with, especially in coaching, I think is, is so huge shifting a little bit. I'd love to hear your thoughts about, creating culture and specifically maybe some of the practical ways that you used symbols, metaphors, and just kind of some unique language to do that at Florida. Creating culture is such a uh, ongoing process. And I think the hard part is, is like, once you feel like you've done it, you're not even close to being done with it because, you know, think about this in college athletics, like they compare this to like the corporate world. It would be like if in your corporation, the top 25% of most experienced and probably most productive employees left every year and they were replaced by the least experienced people um, with no experience every year. And that's college athletics. Seniors leave, freshmen come in. <laughs> and, and so 
what you think is a culture that you've established, you cannot take it for granted that it's going to be the same the next year because you've got a whole different dynamic of your team and probably some of your most experienced and steep leaders are gone. So it's like this constant work in progress, constant. And, you know, when I think, you know, you've got it going well, when your athletes are really driving that. Um, But I would say that as a coach, you just have to be so vigilant to make sure that you're not taking anything for granted because you've been around for a long time. You're not thinking, oh, this is going to happen just because it happened last year. And, And that's hard to do because you you're living in it every day. You're paying attention to it every day. But for some people on your team, it's their first exposure. Yeah, absolutely. Such a a good analogy there for, yeah, if you were to lose 25% of your workforce and then replace them with unexperienced people, I guess to follow up on that, how, how would you or what did you find was the most effective way to try to assimilate those freshmen into your culture as quickly and smoothly as possible? Uh, for me, I, I feel like that had to start in the recruiting process. Um, you know, our, our recruiting process is not really this, you know, big dog and pony show. It's more about like, this is us. This is who we are. This is how we operate. Um, it's not for everyone. And if you really like that, then you're going to fit in really well here. And I think on the backside, what really helps with that is when they do get here, there's no detox from the recruiting process of, you know, I think you're the best player in the world and I'm the best coach in the world. So please come play for me, you know, because that hasn't really happened in the recruiting process for us. The recruiting process for us has been very much like what we do with our team every day. And I think it's, it accelerates the process of people coming in and knowing what they're getting into. I mean, obviously there's still, you know, the freshmen are still freshmen. Um, but there's no culture shock of a shift in what you're told in the recruiting process compared to what you're told when you get there. Yeah, absolutely. I, just being honest and transparent with players. I think that's so, that's so powerful. Like you said, if, if you want that transition into your culture to be, to be smooth, they need to know what it's going to be like up front. to shifting a little bit, but I think connected to that, I'd love to know your thoughts and some of your experience around coaching this generation of athletes. What do you think coaches need to know, be educated on, or just kind of keep at the forefront of their mind as they're coaching athletes today? You know, I get that question asked a lot, like how have um, athletes changed since, you know, over the course of my coaching career or have they? And I'm like, well, of course they have. Like parenting has changed. Society has changed. Our environment has changed. Like why would not kids have changed? Um, And I think a lot of it is just about like the line between um, meeting people where they are, but not necessarily having to live in that world myself. You know, for example, like I mean, I didn't grow up with social media, but I understand and see how social media is utilized by this age group. And so that is a huge factor in determining their motivations and what they do. And if I didn't have that understanding, because I know there's some coaches, like some older coaches, especially they're like, oh, I'm not going on social media. I hate social media. And that's fine. But like, 
even if you're not going to go on it doesn't mean you shouldn't have a really strong understanding of how it impacts people's lives and um i think you could you could apply that to anything um you could apply that to anything in terms of what your athletes are dealing with meeting people where they are and having a way to connect now when i say connect like you know i'm not making tiktoks and you know like I mean, I think they would just think that would be weird, you know, so I, I can appreciate it. That doesn't mean I have to necessarily uh, participate in the same way that they participate. Yeah, absolutely. To continue on that thread a little bit, what did you find were some of the most powerful or some of the most effective ways that you connected with your athletes and built and built trust with them? For me, you know, I, I feel like with me personally, like the way that I think about trust is, um, is just doing what you say you're going to do. And so like just the daily parts of building trust for me are like serving my athletes to the best of my ability, serving this program to the best of my ability, um, finding, you know, common languages and way that we can all communicate on the same page. Uh, our team does the uh, DISC profile, which is a behavioral assessment, just a really simple way to talk about um, how people behave in certain patterns and like, can we recognize those patterns and can we, you know, have some awareness about ourselves and others. Um, and I think like most teams um, that are really successful, you sort of do have your own culture, language, um, customs, traditions, and having people, you know, understand those and the why behind those, I think is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Would you share maybe one or two of those kind of unique cultural customs or traditions that you had at Florida with your team? I, I think one of our big ones is um, it's not really a unique tradition because everybody has alumni, but our alumni are very engaged and part of the reason is there's only been one coach. So I clearly have a, an advantage on most programs because everyone's connected to the same person. Um, but we like if any alumni that comes to town um, or if we're in their town, like we invite them to come speak to our team. And this could be, you know, Abby Wambach, or it could be a player who never played, maybe even a player who played and transferred out. But I think everyone has something to share about their experience here. And, you know, it's so funny because when I've talked to current players and former players, they'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, I remember the alumni coming. And I was like, oh, here we go again, another alumni coming to talk to us. And they're like, and now I'm one of those people talking to everybody. And, you know, crazily enough, like I really learned some lessons from those people when they came and talked to us. So I think it's kind of like one of those things, like when your parents make you do something that you're kind of not crazy about doing, but in the end, you're kind of appreciative of it. Um, that's what it seems like with our alumni, like they are connected to an entire generation of Gator soccer players, not just their four years. Um, and, and that's pretty unique and, and really cool because so many crazy things have come from that, whether it be like connections for jobs in a city that someone's moving to that maybe somebody that played 20 years before them can help them get it in or, you know, a way to have like a social group when they move somewhere that they don't know anyone. Um, someone going into the same field, we had an alumni speak to us um, 
this past spring and she she played here 15 years ago but she had a um a player that on our current team are going into the same field and they are now connected and it's it's really cool like she's helping her go through an internship process so it's just really unique yeah that's awesome so cool the the connections that yeah are spanning lots of years in that program my next question what what did you find in in your experience uh, were some of the most powerful things that you did to make sure that your, or to try to make sure that your team was connected to each other, that players were connected with each other? You know, going back to that trust question, because I think that's kind of what you're asking is how do you build trust? Um, I think a really simple definition of trust is to rely on someone or something. And I think that finding ways to create interdependency on your team, whether that's, you know, in the sport itself or off the field. Um, you know, I, I, a, a little sidetrack story here. We had two players that it wasn't that they didn't like each other, but they just probably weren't in the same friend group. You know, like if we're going to go to dinner, they would be sitting at different tables, but they played in a position where like, it was very important that they had a strong relationship. And so we wanted to like jumpstart that relationship. So Brett had this idea uh, that we sort of took from one of our swim coaches. He used to work at one of the military academies. And so we took him to the pool. This was pre-COVID. Um, and they, we asked them to sw- swim the length of the pool, um, the two of them together with one snorkel underwater. And so you can imagine the challenges. Like, first of all, our players didn't even know that like when you went underwater with a snorkel, you have to blow the the water out of it. So like the first time they were like stroking on water, but then they sort of got the hang of it, but you had to figure out like, okay, so one person was way more comfortable and she needed the snorkel much less than the other one. Um, they got to figure out like, who's going to actually, you know, swim to get the ball, them moving down the pool and who's going to, you know, be more of the, keep it steady and straight. And, and so it took them a while to get that going. But what was really cool was like the next weekend we're playing one of them scored and there's this picture on Gator zone, which is our website of the two of them hugging. And um, one of them sends it to Brett and says, Oh my gosh, what a great picture. Like you should send this to the other one. And she's like, Oh, I got it from her. And so like, that was something that would have never really happened prior to that event. So sometimes I think it's just putting people in situations, whether it's on the field or off the field, where they have to rely on each other and continuing to create that bond as much as you possibly can. That's awesome. Uh, What a good story. Creative too. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Shout out to the, uh, I think it was, um, one of like the Navy SEALs or somebody training at one of the military academies. (laughs) I'm sure they did it much more extreme than we did. Yeah. Well, I love it. I love it. Willing to, to pull ideas from, from other places and yeah, fit them to your team, figure out how they can serve your players. Shifting a little bit. I would love to know your thoughts on how, how, how can coaches and maybe specifically head coaches create a coaching staff that is connected and aligned all on the same page. Mm. You know, if you had this elixir to give the coaching staffs of all people, you would make a lot of money. (laughs) Um, 
you know, I think the head coach does set the tone for that. I think, um, you know, like we talk a lot about loyalty and coaching. Like you hear a lot of coaches say the number one thing I would hire is loyalty. Well, what does that mean to you? You know, like, let's be all working from the same definition, because if I have a great idea and my assistant coach is opposed to that and they voice that, do I take that as lack of loyalty or do I welcome the fact that he or she is comfortable enough to challenge my beliefs and to see if that's really the right solution for us? Um, I think how we model things as a head coach is super important to our staff, you know, because if we're not careful, we can send a lot of mixed signals. Going back to the example I just used, like um, if I say I value trust, but then someone is a truth teller to me, like, let's say they're like coming up to me before like an NCAA tournament game and saying, you know, Hey, you're, you're kind of like a little anxious, like the team might be able to pick up on that. And I'm like, I am not like, shut up, you know, like, so that's not really valuing truth, is it? Cause you're shutting the truth teller down. And so the way that we model what we really want as head coaches, I think goes a long way to um, dictating how our staff behaves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Continue to talk about coaching staffs, but I'd love to, cause I'm, I'm really curious about this. You know, one of the things that has come through in a lot of the conversations I've had with coaches is not only the importance of what you just talked about with trust and loyalty and being on the same page in that standpoint, but then also the challenges that coaching staffs can often have in terms of the practice environment and the teaching and learning and just how oftentimes coaching staffs aren't very aligned in the focus for a training session or a drill. And so there can be lots of concurrent feedback and voices pulling athletes attention in different directions. So I'm, I'm just really curious, was that something that you were intentional about in your guys's practices and training? And, and if so, like, how did you get all of your coaches on the same page or focused on the right things and kind of understanding their roles within that practice or that session. That's so funny that you asked that. Um, Brett was telling me one day that he was observing, I don't know if it was a game or practice and um, it was basketball and this kid had the ball and the bench, there were, one voice was yelling, drive, drive, you know, like take him. And then the other part of the bench was yelling, make a pass, you know, like, so two totally conflicting ideas. Um, and I'll tell you what, like, it's, it's hard. Like I would not uh, say that our staff has been always on the same page and consistently focused on the same message. Um, I think communication is a big part of that. You know, we meet every single day as a staff. Um, I think using people with the best gifts in the best places. So for example, I have a, a, an assistant coach on my staff who is an amazing teacher. Like I would say that people across the country would rate him as one of the best teachers of the game. And he leads the training session because he's so clear and concise and such a good teacher. I don't have a problem with that because 
you know, as the head coach, he does a better job than me. And I think as long as our team understands that, like, he's leading this because it's the best thing for our team and the best thing for you all, not because he's trying to take over my role or anything like that, um, but like putting people in the right spots. And then my other assistant coach, he's like passionate and like, you know, great motivator, but like ask him to explain and teach. He can get there for sure. But, you know, it's going to have some questions before people are really clear on what we're doing. So he has no ego about the other assistant coach teaching it either because he knows his strengths. And so, like, let's celebrate each other's strengths and put them in those roles as opposed to being concerned about what's my territory as a coach or an assistant coach. That's really powerful. Yeah, the the two things that I'm really taking away from there is is one, yeah, just being willing to put people in roles where they're strong and everyone being okay with that. And then two, that you communicated that to your whole team too. Hey, this is why we do this, this way. Like this coach is, is more gifted in this area. He's more skilled in it. So he's going to lead these things and, and just making sure they know it too. Like this isn't, we're on the same page here. We we're doing this because we think it's best for our team. I think Mm -hmm. there's, yeah, just tons of power in that honesty and transparency, totally different topic. And, and then have a couple more questions and then a few rapid fire questions for you at, at the university of Florida, typical roster size for your team was around 30 girls. Is that what you said? That's about right. Yeah. Only 11 girls are getting to play or start. And then do they have the number of subs captain in college soccer? Not in college soccer, but still, I mean, you're top, typically playing, you know, maybe 16, 17 people. Yeah. Match. Yeah. That's hard for the 13, 14 girls that aren't seeing the field at all. Will you talk about handling the dynamics of playing time and what you found were some of the yeah, best practices to do that and keep your culture and your team intact? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think that here's, here's what the guiding principle for me is. I think that if a player decides they want to leave Florida because they have a better opportunity somewhere, you know, maybe they're going to get more playing time. Um, I, I can live with that and I'll support that and I'll try to help them get there. If a player decides they want to leave Florida because they felt like I didn't give them or we didn't give them as a staff the attention that they deserved, then I, I struggle with that because we need to service all of our players, regardless of their playing time, you know, in, in any way, whether that's academically, athletically, um, emotionally. Um, and so I think my guiding principle has been, let's make sure that everybody feels like their voice can be heard, that their role is important. You know, one of the things that, uh, we try to do to that end, we, we do have a bench camera that we, that films our bench. And we tried to intersperse some of the bench clips with our teaching clips that we're using in video to highlight when people are doing such a great job of bringing energy or, you know, imagine if you're playing left back and the reserve left back is just cheering their ass off for you. Like you might not even see that in the game because you're playing, but like, we need to show that, like we need to highlight that. Um, And certainly, you know, that bench cam also records like if we have poor body language or if the coaches are losing their mind, you know, so, so there's other purposes for that too. But I just think that like 
players need to feel like they're not an afterthought. And there's so many signals that we send, you know, like, like in practice, you're playing your first team against your reserves and the first team struggling. Are you praising the reserves or are you getting mad at the first team? You know, something as simple as that. Um, I try to often times coach the reserve team in practice. Uh, and there's two reasons for that. Uh, one is I think it does help make them feel important, but I also feel like I want that reserve to be, team to be as good as possible to push that first team. And I want them to be as motivated as possible. And I think by showing them that kind of attention, they're providing a better environment for the first team. And I have trust that my assistant coaches can manage the first team. Um, so just thinking about ways that you might unintentionally be not um, servicing your reserves or the people who aren't playing all the time to the best of your ability. Yeah, absolutely. And what you said is so powerful, just highlighting the contributions of the players that aren't getting that playing time. Cause I mean, we, most coaches were once athletes, like we all remember what we wanted. We just, we just wanted to be on the field, right? We just wanted to play and those athletes are no different and, and to make them feel valued in whatever role they have. And it's just, it's so powerful. And like you said, oftentimes like the example of, yeah, that left back that's out there playing, she doesn't even realize how, how enthusiastic her teammate is on the sideline. And then for them to see that and just build a stronger connection with them to that trust, something you mentioned in that last, last answer and, and kind of ties back to something we talked about earlier. You talked about that bench cam and you know, oftentimes the things that it shows and maybe even the things it shows as far as the coaching goes of it. And you talked about, yeah, if a coach is losing it on the sideline, uh, you're going to be exposed on the, on the bench cam. Also earlier, you just mentioned the importance of modeling from coaches. And if we say we're about these things, we have to be about these things. I would love to, I would love to know your thoughts about the importance of coaches modeling and especially, especially modeling behavior around mistakes and adversity, right? Cause I think every coach would say, I want a team that is resilient, that responds to mistakes in positive ways. Just talk about the importance of coaches modeling that. Oh, a, a topic near and dear to my heart. And I think it's funny because, you know, obviously we've spent this a whole last year wearing masks on the sideline. I think there's a lot of coaches who need to continue to wear the mask, even if we don't have to, because it just sort of hides their reactions sometimes that are probably not positive. Um, but back to your question, I think that you know, one of my favorite parts of uh, Brett's latest book, it's called What Drives Winning Environments. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite books, period, because it just has so many tools. But one of my favorite tools in that book is something that uh, Mike Holder, the athletic director at Oklahoma State said, and he said, if I want my team to blank, then I need to blank. And I feel like that needs to be like a practice t-shirt because like you could just put a different word in there every day. You know, if I want my team to be poised, then I need to be poised. If I want my team to be resilient, then I need to be resilient. And so many times I think like coaches are sort of given this free pass to act the way they want to. And, you know, I, I think we have to like be able to remove ourselves emotionally enough to 
react in what the team needs as opposed to what our own personal needs are. I mean, I've told my team before, like if I said everything I thought in my head to you, you guys would be really upset with me and, and you probably would hate me. <laughs> like, you know, so I have to filter that and be able to understand what needs to come out based on what the needs of the team are. And there are times when, you know, the team needs a kick in the butt and then need that emotional push. But there's also times when the game is so emotional and they need me to calm down, you know? So like, am I able to recognize that and deliver it? Um, I think it's a really important skill. I think we, we highly underrate emotional control in coaching and, you know, in the what drives winning environments book, we highlight Brad Stevens, who is, you know, gosh, like one of the masters of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so, so powerful. And so much of what you said that's so powerful is just being aware of it as the coach and having that awareness, being able to to step outside of the situation a little bit and just ask the question, what does my team need here? And really it comes down to, can I respond instead of just react? Because that's what we want our kids to do too. But like you said, if I want my team to be this, then then I've got to be this. But that that's hard. That's really easily said, not easy to do. Here's my, my last question before a few rapid fire questions. If, if you coach Burley could decide these are the top three things that every coach of every sport at every level, they need to be educated on these three things to, to give their athletes a great experience to be an effective coach. What would they be? Wow. Good question. Um, Well, I would probably say one of them would be, you know, the motivations of the generation that you're coaching, whatever that may be. Um, Secondly, I would say you need to be educated on what it is that your, your team and your individual players want. So, you know, when people are doing something that aligns with their self-interest, they're usually very motivated and want to do it. And you're not even having to use any power to get them to do it because they're internally motivated. And so if I know a player eventually wants to go pro, how am I helping them get there within the context of my current team? If I know a player wants to be a doctor, how am I providing an environment to allow them to balance playing soccer at this level and doing that academic load at this level? you know, so aligning self-interest. And then the third thing, um, you know, I'm just going to put it in a broad sense. I think every coach needs to be curious and that just covers so much because that could cover the first two that I've already talked about, but it could also cover, you know, if you're curious, then you're going to always grow. I feel like, because you're going to be wondering like, what's the next development in my sport? What's the next development in human behavior? Like, you're just going to always have this desire to learn and to get better. And so that's a trait that I really look for in the players we recruit, you know, how, how, how much are they looking to grow or how much are they sort of stagnated where they are? And they see colleges like the finish line instead of the start line. Yeah, that's really good. Really. Really good stuff in there. All right. Here are our three rapid fire questions for you. I just want to know the the first thing that comes to your mind. (laughs) I love these. The most fun part of coaching is 
alumni weekends. It's awesome. <laughs> I mean, it really is because you get to see them like when they come back and they have their families of their own. I love saying, hey, that kid is just like you and you deserve that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Here's the next one. Uh, I know I'm successful as a coach when... Uh, when people are willing to continue to be invested in our program long after they're gone. That's really good too. Such a focus on the long term. Here's the last one. I wish I would have known blank before my first coaching experience. Oh my gosh. Like way more than I did. I was 21 as a first year head coach. So pretty much you could put everything into that category for me. Is there is there one one specific area or one thing you're like, man, this was a this was a really hard lesson I had to learn that would have saved me a lot of headache if I knew it up front? I think that probably especially early, my hardest lesson was that you cannot outwork every problem. Sometimes your work is actually creating the problem. That's powerful. That's really powerful. Well, Coach Burley, this has been this has been awesome. Uh, before we hop off, tell people where they can connect with you and see what you and Brett are doing at What Drive Winning. What drives winning? Well, we actually have some really exciting things happening. Um, first of all, you know Brett's new book, What Drives Winning Environments. Like I said, that's one of my favorites. All this stuff, all the resources are on WhatDrivesWinning.com, so it's pretty easy. Um, we are starting a master's degree program at the University of Florida. That's what I'm doing in my retirement is taking a lot of the practical things I've learned through coaching and combining that with what drives winning and creating what drives winning uh, master's degree. So that starts in the fall. Um, And if people want to connect with me just on a um, personal level, all of my uh, social media handles are really simple. It's just at Becky Burley. <laughs> so um, I, I'm, I'm very excited about being able to put a little bit more time into coaching development. I feel like, I feel like that's one of the things I've been called to do is to try and create the next generation of coaches and not just through my own experiences, but by bringing experiences of all these very high level coaches to people who might never have a chance to you know, meet them in person um, through, through the way that we interview them and produce videos and things like that. So, and, and we want to do that. Like we want that available to the masses. So we're trying to create situations that are accessible to anyone, regardless of their finances. Coaches, thanks for listening to this episode. And thanks again to coach Burley for coming on the podcast. If you'd like to get a free PDF of the notes from today's episode, go to coachesclubpod.com or just click the link in the show details to download a free PDF of the notes from this episode. And if you're interested in joining the waitlist for a free virtual book club covering the Coach's Guide to Teaching or downloading the free study guide to the book, you can go to cgtbookclubs.com to download the free study guide and join the waitlist for upcoming book clubs. Thanks for listening to the Coach's Club podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, Athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training.